Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 144. So glad you could join me. It's going to be a great show today. Mike White is here. He'll be here in about 10 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too. So please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed, all that good stuff. Whatever you can do to help poetry spread around the internet is much appreciated. Um, now we're going to go to um, today's um, Poets Respond Poet first, and um, by coincidence, we talked to T.R. Paulson last week about this exact topic, um, and then she sent a great poem in, and um, so we published Longshot as today's poem, and here she is, T.R. Paulson. Hey, T.R., how are you doing? Morning. Hi, everyone. Yeah, it, it's great to see you. It, it, was, it was just funny to, um, you know, to have talked about this and, and you know, I mentioned, I think, that we wouldn't probably get very many submissions about the um, the um, the horse. Uh, uh, what was the horse's name? Uh, Rich Strike. Rich Strike. Yeah, and we actually we did get about, I think, I'd say eight poems, maybe about it, and um, and a lot of discussion on social media too, which um, you know, I think it it did inspire a lot of people. So, um, can you um, explain, you know, how this poem came to be a little bit, even though we know already if we watched last week. Well, I think I send a derby poem to you every year. And um, you published one of my Preakness poems, but never one of my derby poems. Um, so, yeah, there were just a million different things I could have written about and a million different angles. And then that, um, that article I, with the interview with Eric Reed, the trainer, about the biting, I saw that and I'm like, okay, that's my front. And then... I really struggled with it. I um, the middle stanza came out right away, and then, but I struggled and struggled and struggled. The first one was originally going to be about track and field with humans, like or maybe a five k, but it just fell flat because it felt like too much of a parallel. So then I was watching um, whichever day it was that the Warriors got blown out, um, and I thought, oh, basketball. That's a, that's not quite as much of a parallel. So then that came into be, and then the third stanza didn't even happen until yesterday at work when I um, I go on power hikes on my, my on my lunch, mm-hmm. and I was at the bottom of a ravine when all of a sudden the third when the third stanza just came out of my mouth, and I just hustled up the ravine, and I um, people don't know me, I'm a UPS driver, and I have these low diagrams that I that get printed out every day and then they just get thrown away. But before they get thrown away, I always grab them in case I want to write something on my lunch or something. So I wrote, I hurried and wrote it on the back of my low diagram and then brought it home. And um, then a friend called me that night, uh, Friday night, and it took, and I was thinking I would not make the deadline. And then the only thing that I ended up doing to make it work was I tweaked the rhyme scheme a little bit and the third stanza, but I just went with it. And yeah, that's how it came to be. <laughs> and uh, and it's written after um, the, the Anne Sexton poem in the same form anyway, um, uh, the poem Her Kind. Um, it, yeah, did, I get, did that form. How, when that when did that happen? Was that early on? You knew you were going to do that, or did it did it happen later? After I wrote the the middle stanza, that first stanza, then I kept thinking about the Anne Sexton poem, and it just felt so alike tonally. And I thought, you know what? I think that's my form, and mm-hmm. it was just a matter of letting it work for me. I, mean, I love writing imitation poems, and I, I mean, the fact that I wrote a successful one about her kind is just, I mean. I mean, she's just, I mean, she's one of those poems that you, 
read in freshman poetry classes and makes you fall in love with poetry, or at least me, made me fall in love with poetry. And I don't know, maybe if there's time, I can read that poem too. I don't know. Or maybe just mine. Oh, yeah. That's actually a good idea. Why don't we do that? Why don't you read Longshot? And then we'll read the end Sexton poem too. That'd be fun. Cool. Longshot for Rich Strike. I have been the player benched at tip-off game by na- game, watched nets dance with leather, felt the storm and wrench of clumsy. I defied it, made my chance in cones lined up on pavement, only the sun to coach my feet, my hands. I have been that lonely. I have sought bouquets of crimson roses, hid beyond the slides and swings at recess, played in fields, held my princess poses among the calves. I have worn a dress and asked a boy to dance as Sony speakers belted love. He didn't say yes. I have been that lonely. I have drained a three-point shot, the one that glitters memory like waves curl to sand, felt all of that and more in a man's hand. I kicked, slapped, not knowing I had won everything. When the long shot bites the pony after he wins the roses, I understand I have been that lonely. Yeah, just an excellent poem. I just love the, the rhyme and the way you work through that. It's a wonderful example of the form. Um, but before you read the section poem, I, can you explain just a little bit about the, the lead pony? Because I don't know anything about horse racing, so I have no idea. So the, the pony, like, bit, you know, the, the champion horse, Rich Strike, bit the lead pony, whatever that is. And then the, the guy hit the horse, and people were mad about that. So what, what is the situation with that? Well, the article is explains it a lot better than I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens is that you have um, these horses that are bred to, all they want to do is win. That's, they've been, I mean, they're prey animals, so they've been evolved to want to win. And then um, they've been, for the last 300 plus years, they've been bred even more to want to win. So when they, you know, sometimes that wanting to win just doesn't stop even after the race. And they're just competing and competing and competing. Um, but the way though, I mean, there's always lead ponies, even in, and lower profile races that go get the horses after and help calm them down and get them out of race mode and into, okay, now I'm going to go back to the, get a bath and go back to my stall kind Mm -hmm. of mode. Um, but in a higher profile race, usually what happens is that, um, the, the NBC people or whoever write up to try to interview the jockey because they want to get that, you know, that winning, that winning moment. So it was sort of disrupted when Rich Strike was still in race mode and he just wanted to keep on running Mm -hmm. and he had to be calmed down. But I really love what the trainer said about how, no, the, the, I mean, this is a huge animal and his job is to calm the animal down. And sometimes you have to get a little bit more aggressive than looks good on television. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that's pretty much it. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, thanks for explaining that because it was something, you know, I, I, I didn't really know much about. Um, do you want to go ahead and read Her Kind? I, I found it here um, courtesy of poets.org so I can put it on the screen. Yeah, I have you. it too. I have it, have I have it memorized. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those poems that if I was stranded on a desert island, I wouldn't need to take it with me because <laughs> it's here. Um, Her Kind. I've gone out a possessed witch 
haunting the black air braver at night. Dreaming evil, I've done my hitch over the plain houses, light by light. Lonely thing, 12 fingered out of mind. A woman like that is not a woman, quite. I have been her kind. I have found the warm caves in the woods, filled them with skillets, carvings, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods, fixed the suppers for the worms and the elves, whining, rearranging the disaligned. A woman like that is misunderstood. I have been her kind. I have ridden in your cart, driver, waved my nude arms at villages going by, learned the last bright routes, survivor, where your flames still bite my thigh and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. A woman like that is not ashamed to die. I have been her kind. Yeah, thanks so much, Tia, for both for uh, writing this poem and um, and sharing that Anne Sexton poem as well. It's a fun start to the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's totally my pleasure. And I'm so excited to be, I mean, for the Mike White segment. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's going to be awesome. Been looking forward He's to this one of my for favorite a couple poems. years. Yeah, very cool. Well, hopefully I'll see you later on the open lines, maybe, if you wrote one for that too. Uh, talk to you later. All right, thanks. Bye. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to switch over to Mike White. So just hold tight, and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. As I mentioned, today's guest is Mike White. I've been a huge fan of Mike for such a long time. Uh, you know, when he was on the show, Study Beyond, um, I didn't have to do anything to find his books because they're right there on my permanent shelf that I pull out um, when I need some inspiration and want to feel good about poetry. Um, Mike White's been published um, two poetry collections, How to Make a Bird with Two Hands and Addendum to the Miracle. His work can be found in magazines including Plowshares, Poetry, The New Republic, The Three Penny Review, and The Yale Review. He's winner of the Anthony Hecht Prize, The Washington Prize, and Rattles 2010 Neil Postman Award for Metaphor. Originally from Canada, he now lives in Salt Lake City and teaches at the University of Utah. And uh, here he is, Mike White. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Tim. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's really cool to see. I mean, I don't know how how you're sort of viewed in the poetry world, but for for me personally, you're like a legend almost. Like a you know, because you don't have much social media presence, and no. I've never seen you do a reading. Um, but your books are just wonderful. We published maybe a dozen of your poems, um, and they're just great, and everybody loves them. So it's really cool to see you for the first time. No, thanks so much for having me. This is great. Yeah. Um, do you want to start out with a poem? Sure. Um, so this is from uh, How to Make a Bird with Two Hands, and it's a, it's a poem called Wind. Not a remarkable wind. So when the bistro's patio umbrella blew suddenly free and pitched into the middle of the road, it put a stop to the afternoon. Something white and amazing was blocking the way. A waiter in a clean apron appeared, not quite certain, shielding his eyes, wary of our rumbling engines. He knelt in the hot road, making two figures in white, one leaning over the sprawled, broken shape of the other, creaturely, great-winged, and now so carefully gathered in. Yeah, that was wind from this beautiful book, How to Make a Bird with Two Hands. Uh, that's Mike White's first book of poetry, which won the Washington Prize uh, from the Word Works Press. 
Um, so, so Mike, let me, uh, what is your background like? Where did you, um, how long have you been writing poetry and, and how did you get into it? Um, is it something that you always wanted to be or did you find yourself here? Like what was your avenue into? No, this? I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't say I always wanted to be a poet. Um, growing up, I grew up in Montreal. Um, um, I, I, I enjoyed playing sports and, and, um, I, I guess I was always a reader, but it never, it never would have occurred to me to, to write, to write poetry. And it was, it was really only um after i had done my undergraduate and after i'd done my master's degree um and i started reading a little bit more i suppose contemporary poetry i think i think for a while um i kind of thought that you know poetry had ended in the early 60s when robert frost died that was like you know mm-hmm. bring down the curtain that's it for poetry um but but i started to read more contemporary stuff and 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 um yeah and somewhere you know my, around my late 20s i i, I thought um, just maybe, maybe I could do this. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where it started. Yeah. And, and what was your path like to, um, to your, your style, which is, um, you know, very concise and, and you have the, the, really the tightest poems of, of anybody I can think of. I mean, Kay Ryan is cause up there, the way she writes, uh, it's hard to think of other people that, that write as tightly, you know, it's very haiku-ish, but not restricted to the haiku form. Yeah. Um, how, how, why were you drawn to that? And, and how did that develop as a style? I, I I think I, when I would look at uh, collections of poetry or would look through magazines, I would always immediately gravitate toward you know the shortest the shortest poems. Um, so I think I think that's always that's always been there, and I I have always enjoyed uh, haiku um, as well. Um, and then when I started to read uh, William Carlos Williams, and a little bit later, as you say, Kay Ryan, Jane Hirschfield. Um, Charles Simic, you know, th- those, those kinds of writers inspired me as well. Um, but I, I think it's just the, 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 the challenge of it. I mean, I think that, uh, th- there's, there's this sort of wonderful paradox about short poems where on the one hand, it's this act of extraordinary humility, right? I mean, there's just so few words. There's so, um, you know, you know, you're, 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 you're doing so little in the way of sort of putting black marks on a page, but, on the other hand, there's there's real, real kind of moxie involved in in thinking that you can say something in three or in five or in six or eight lines. Um, so I I just really enjoy that that kind of challenge, and I, I like as much as possible to re to leave room for the reader. Um, I think to kind of participate in that poem, and I I tend to find that shorter poems, really uh, spare simple poems, um, allow that to happen. Yeah, that's exactly why um, my two copies of these books are so dog-eared, is because you can just flip open and read one for the eighth time, and it's still enjoyable because there's so much room in there, given all the, you know, the white space allows for so much interpretation and, uh, and thinking about um, all the different ways you can, you know, respond to the poems and how much is contained in so few, not even words, but letters. I mean, it's, it's so little on the page. Um, do you want to read another one? Let's, let's show people more examples of this. Sure. Um, actually, this one's not, not terribly short, but um, not long either. It's a, it's a poem called Tentacled Motherfucker. Lives in the sewers, lives on algae, lives forever. Steals mail, steals checks, one child still missing. Sneaks cereal bars from the Bisco factory dumpster. When the night guard hears rummaging out back, he puts his earphones on and loudly hums. Once an uncanny shadow under a bridge, identified by two boys sniffing paint thinner, makes a moaning sound 
makes a sobbing sound, rings the church bell at unlikely hours, starts weird fires and the sky turns green, paints ravishing nocturnal murals. In the railroad yard, there's a little vegetable garden no one remembers planting. And that was Tentacled Motherfucker from uh, How to Make a Bird with Two Hands. Um, so, so what is your process like for writing these poems? Uh, do you do you, a lot of poets like brainstorm and do the maximalist thing and then cut, 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 cut? Is that what you do? Or do you think, I mean, and the, the nice thing about like writing haiku is that you can write them like in the shower while you're walking your dog and, you know, yeah. and then just write them down later because they're so short, you don't forget them and, and you can play with them. Just you, they're small enough to hold in your mind at one time. Yeah. Uh, is, is that like that for you or do you do a lot of revision? Um, I do a lot of revision, but it's kind of revision um, on the existing poem. So I rarely sort of are crumpling up pieces of paper and throwing them. Um, it, it's, it's, it either kind of, I'll get a sense fairly early on whether this has any potential to be a poem or not. And if it doesn't, I kind of throw it into my, what I call my B file. Um, otherwise, I kind of just keep, I keep working on it, maybe add a little bit, um, maybe, maybe shave a little bit away, um, maybe change the title. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I guess I guess in a way it goes through revisions, but they're not wholesale wholesale revisions. Um, I think when I when I first started writing, I would I would begin with uh, an experience or a memory, and sort of try and find language to fit. And I find now more and more that I do it the other way around, where I'll I'll, I'll sit down and just begin with language and see if it can bring me to uh, a certain kind of experience. Um, uh, uh, you know, so going from something that is sort of unfamiliar or, or just language that I've just concocted in my mind and seeing if it can lead me to a place um, of knowing or at least a place of, 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 of interest, of fascination, some, it's something that uh, in, intrigues me at a much more personal level. Mm -hmm. So that's... That's that's kind of my process. It's not it's not it's not sort of the spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling um, uh, so much as it is kind of really sort of playing with the language and seeing if I could get to that place of feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and how much, you know, the um, introduction to A Denim to a Miracle um, talks a lot about your connection with the poet Issa. Um, and can you explain that about how like, like what are you looking for? Um, you know, what is it about your work that resonates with Issa or Issa that resonates with you? Yeah, I, th I, I think I think that Issa is a, is a poet who um, writes funny poems, um, which is something that I that I, I aspire to do as well. Um, but there it, it's a kind of humor that often leads to other other kinds of experiences, which is, which is I think, one of the powerful things that, that humor can do. Um, and if you can if you can cram humor into a three line poem, I mean, I think you've really accomplished something. So um I, I look to Issa for that. I mean, this is somebody who writes about loss, uh, mortality, love, um, uh, you know, all of the big poetic subjects. Um, but he does it so often in a kind of a humorous vein. And he does it by looking at the little things of life, looking at, you know, the insects, um, uh, you know, just just looking down rather than than, than looking up. Um, and I, I, I kind of that 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 is that is to me the sort of model that I would that I would want to emulate. Um, but I think I think more than anything else, it's just the humor of his of his work, um, which I think is really, really powerful. I think humor allows you to uh, create other kinds of uh, 
feelings and and uh, memories uh, invoked all sorts of experiences in a reader once you've kind of opened them up. And I think that's what Issa does, you know, uh, in really powerful ways. Yeah, there's something about um, Issa that kind of ties together the the, the humor and, and the comedy and, and, and drama of poetry, the, the ah and the aha, that connection there, because there's sort of like an awe behind both of them, you know? Like like a looking out at awe in the world, and then um, and then you're laughing. You know, you could either laugh or cry, and you know, and those are the two ways it can it can take you. But it's still the same awe behind both. I think. Right. Um, I mean, you think when you when you're laughing really really hard, I mean, you're 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 crying. Your your pores are opening up. Your eyes, you know, everything. So yeah, they're very they're very you know conjoined feelings for sure. Do Do you have any? Are there any Issa poems that you know by heart that you remember? <laughs> um. Spring rain, how they carry on, uneaten ducks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no better adjective uh, uh, than uneaten, right? Mm-hmm. We're all we're all uneaten in a sense, at least for the moment. Yeah, I mean that's that's it. that's just what Issa has so much of is um, the sacred and the profane. You know that intermingling right. of the two, right. um, and, and it's there present in your work as well. Uh, let's read the next poem. Sure. Hold on to, uh, let me find, <laughs> they're so quick, I want to make sure. Uh... So I was going to read NASCAR, which is actually a poem that appeared in, in Rattle. Yeah, okay, here you go. So NASCAR, not rolling in liquid fire or pulled apart by physics, not between commercials, but the way an old dog, half blind, noses around and around some quiet apple-scented, chosen ground. Yeah, so that, that poem was the one that won the Neil Postman Award for metaphor. Um, and we did, I mean, that metaphor of, uh, both it's like a double metaphor of the NASCAR and the dog <laughs> and life and, and the cycle of life. It's hard to know which way it goes, yeah. It is, yeah. It's like three metaphors rolled into one, which is, I mean, for a metaphor award, it was hard to beat that one. Um, so I, I was wondering, though, how did this poem come to be? Like, wh- like what was the start? Was it NASCAR? Was it seeing a dog tied to a, a, a pole? Or, I mean, what was it? How did how did the poem come about? Probably a little bit of both. Um, as I said, I, I, I love sports. I follow sports, but but not not NASCAR. I'm not even sure if NASCAR is a sport. Um, I don't want to get in trouble. Maybe people will think it is a sport. Um, but yeah, I, I, I often begin writing um, about things I don't know, and which I know goes completely against all, you know, sound advice that you receive about writing, you know, write about what you know. Um, but it, oftentimes I like to begin with something I know very little about. So in case of NASCAR, I knew they went around in an oval in one direction and, you know, there were lots of fiery crashes and that was about it. Um, but I love that as a starting point because um, by beginning there, if things go well, if I get lucky, um, it might lead me in the direction of a, of a much more personal place. Um, and that's, and that's kind of what happened in this poem. Yeah. You mentioned um, in a note, um, I don't think I can pull up fast enough, but you said something about how, you know, poem poetry is a process of discovery. Like you, you write about things that you don't know much about. Um, how, how does that work? Like, what do you think it is that, that makes the discovery happen? Um, what is it about writing poetry that, that can be used as a tool that way? Um, I, I think language in general, at least, at least from my experience is, is a place that can, that can get you there. Um, 
I mean, I think of I think of like a child who's who, who plays with ants, right? As we all do when you're you know five or six years old. No one has to tell a kid go and go and play with those ants. Um, you know, kids will just do that, and I think that's that's kind of how I think about words and about sort of those little black marks on the page. I just I, I kind of play around with them, um, and to a certain extent, you can you know manipulate what they do, just like you can throw a you know a stick into a pile of ants and they'll kind of climb all over it, or a piece of bread and and they'll you know, carry it away, but they're going to do their own ant thing as well, right? And so I think that's that's kind of what's fascinating to me about language, the ways that you can control it and manipulate it and the ways in which it just does its own thing. And that process of discovery is really the kind of the, the bringing together of those two elements of, of, of language, the kind of the ways that you can manipulate it and the ways that these, you know, happy accidents, um, um, you know, to put it in Bob Ross terms, you know, how they, how they, do, how they do so often happen. So that's that to me is really exciting. And it's really the wonder to me of poetry of what, of what it can accomplish, both as a writer and as a reader. Yeah, I love that. I never heard that before of, of, of the words of ants, but but they, you know, they move on their own. They kind of have a life ants. on their own, but you can play with them, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, let, let's hear another one. Okay. Actually, I'll read one. Um, I'm throwing, I'm kind of throwing you a curve here, Tim, sure, because yeah. I didn't, I didn't uh, outline this one at the beginning, but um, death for bad guys tastes like candy. I'll read that one. And that's from um, How to Make a Bird with Two Hands as well. Okay. So death for bad guys tastes like candy, which explains why there's no hurrying the bad guy when he's got the good guy right where he wants him, sweating under the industrial saw blade that advances so slowly you wonder how such a speed setting could ever be useful in the manufacture of anything. Though it's just the thing for the bad guy who lives to savor the almost unbearable anticipatory sweetness of death drawn out to an eternity of close-ups alternating between two men, every pipe in the place is steaming, who share a certain moral fanaticism and a passion for the pretty office girl turned militia queen who is just now regaining consciousness and taking her cue from the swelling, music is maneuvering a giant meat hook onto a giant pendulum. And still the bad guy has time to finish the good guy with the flick of a switch, but he chooses instead to methodically turn and take the meat hook full on with a slow-mo grimace and a long, tapering moan that always means a happy ending. Yeah, that's just great. The death for bad guys tastes like candy from uh, How to Make a Bird with Two Hands. And and that form, um, you know, the, the, you play a lot with with punctuation and the way the poems move along the page. And, and this one's really interesting because there's no punctuation and a lot of the sentences are smashed together. And then you have that one methodically is broken across the line with a hyphen. Um, what were you trying to do with this poem and what, what was the, what, what were you going for? I, I think oftentimes with, with uh, both punctuation and line endings, when I, what I'm seeking to do, I don't know if it, if it always works. I, I'm sure it doesn't always work, but um you know, you're trying to create that that sort of double double exposure, right? If I can use that kind of metaphor, where you have you know two photographs, you know, one on top of the other, um, and as as a reader experiences that first line as it moves into the second line, ideally, it may cause a kind of a revision of sense um, of, of of what of what the sort of the mind 
his eye is able to, to, to visualize. Um, and if both of those things can kind of overlap, um, yeah, I think, I think you've achieved something. So it's not as though every line does that, but I think, I think that's one of the things that you can do with, uh, with line endings. That's, that's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, going back to the haiku thing, I mean, that's a lot of the things that haiku poets, especially you know more contemporary haiku poets in English play with, is, is smashing things together, those yeah. one-line haikus, which a lot of your work reminds me of. Um, how often do you write? Like, is it a, is it a regular, because you, um, you know, there, there tend to be shorter poems and, um, you know, it feels like I want to, I want to believe you write a poem every day. Yeah. <laughs> do, do I'm you... glad you think that <laughs> turns out that's not the case. Um, no, I don't, I, I don't write every day. I probably should. Um, uh, and I don't, I don't really write, um, you know, because I'm inspired necessarily in any sense. Um, uh, but I'll, but when I have time, I'll, I'll, I'll sit down and, and start to write. And usually what happens is, um, the first hour, nothing, the first, you know, the second hour, nothing. And then maybe in the third hour, I'll feel like I'm, you know, I remember how to do this just a little bit. Um, so that that's usually how my process goes <laughs> with a lot of coffee as well. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is there like a, a spiritual component to it too? Cause I always think of poetry as prayer. We had Chris Anderson yeah. on last week. Um, who's a Catholic deacon talking about prayer and poetry. And I just always think of it that way as a non-religious person. Um, it's sort of my religion is to be able to have those kind of, you know, hymn-like mantras that and, and you need to, to read other people's and be, have that meditative kind of connection yeah. with the unknown or whatever it is. Is that, is it something that happens for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I'm like you, I, I don't, um, I'm not a regular churchgoer, um, um, but but you know, it, I, I think you're right that that poetry is prayer at its at its best, at least poetry is prayer um, that you can experience that sense of wonder. Um, and, and really, to my mind, that's that's what spiritual spirituality represents, that that renewed sense of, of wonder, being able to see the world in, an, in a new way. Um, I think it is. Is it Paul Elward? I think the French poet. Uh, who said uh, uh, there is another world and it is in this one, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's that's kind of what we're all trying to do. We're trying to uh, discover or rediscover that other world, the one that exists within this one. And and to me, that's 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 what that's what spirituality is. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, let's do the next poem, and this one is um, two people separately have re- requested this. Tr, who was just on. Post it just here, and, and someone else has asked for this too. It's fathers, okay, uh, from Rattled. If you want to read that one, okay. And, fathers, uh, hang on a second. Okay, I've got to flip to the book. It's on, it's in there, but this is from um, Addendum to the Miracle. So let me flip to it really quick. For uh, when poets have longer poems, I don't rush to flip as much. But uh, here we go. Yeah, <clears throat> fathers. This one saws the board. This one sees the board, but does not saw it, or not as his father sawed it. This one saws his kids in half, but does not see it. This one is bored. This one still sees what he saws, his second wife says. This one saws to have something real to seize. This one for the scent of pine. This one for the sound. This one sees saws as everything around him comes slowly crashing down. Yeah, 
And then his father, there's another poem uh, from, from Rattle that appeared in Addendum to a Miracle, uh, Mike White's most recent book. And uh, both of your books have won prizes. This was the winner of the Anthony Hecht Poetry Prize. The other was the Washington Prize. Um, and you're one of the only poets um, that has been on the, Rattle, on the podcast that doesn't have a... Um, you know, just an online presence. I mean, you don't have a website, you don't have uh, social media. And the idea, a lot of people think that you have to do that. Um, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people say, oh God, I have to get on Twitter now because I have a book coming out. Or, um, you know, and, and my press, even in 2009, when my book came out, um, said you have to have a website, you know, else we're not publishing a book, basically. Really? Um, yeah. So how do, you, how do you get away with that? And how have you found... <laughs> Um, you know, and, and why, like, why don't you try to, to, to have that kind of, uh, online presence? I think, I think I've always been, um, a little bit wary of that, of, 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 um, of being sort of, um, I suppose just sort of susceptible to those kinds of, those kinds of influences. Um, I, I, but I, but I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I, I, I certainly think in terms of, of, of promoting your work, that's, that's how it's, that's how it's done today. But um, I mean, I was, I was, I think the last person uh, in North America, you know, to get, to get a cell phone and I still don't, I still don't carry it around with me. So I'm, I, I'm very reluctant to be too sort of plugged in. Um, um, but, but, you know, that said, I, I, I would like people to, to, to read what I write. I mean, um, I, I send, I send out to magazines and I send out to, to book contests. So, um, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat torn about that, about that issue. Um, but I, I certainly like to feel at least sort of liberated from, from those, those kinds of connections, at least for the most part, I do, ha I do have a Facebook page, <laughs> but I haven't checked it in maybe four or five months. Uh -huh. Um, so yeah, um, uh, I suppose I have I have sort of ideological reasons. Some of it probably is also just um, uh, I, I don't I just don't spend a lot of time doing that. I, I, I tend to like to go hiking and skiing and doing other things or or spend my time writing. So some of it is just that as well. Yeah. Well, if it's any consolation, I don't think it actually works. I don't think it does a whole lot for um, for sales. I think maybe having one place where people can find links to your work, like even if it's just a, a link tree, but otherwise I don't think being on social media actually helps. Um, I actually have, can, I have a, a, there's a, there's a website, a wonderful uh, website um, that's, uh, that's been set up recently. Uh, um, and it's uh Utah poets, exclusively Utah poets. So I can I can provide the link to that. I do have I do have a little a little uh, profile there and a few a few sample poems. So mm -hmm. um, I am I am there. <laughs> well, yeah. I just I mean I think it's I think I don't know I wouldn't rush out to do it. I don't think it's yeah. um it's necessary. It's just it's just cool to see somebody bucking the trend. And um and I didn't have a I had a flip phone for a long time. I finally got a, a smartphone for the first time only because I'd be you know we moved to the mountains and there's forest fires and so I'd look up okay. and see all the smoke and I'd be like is that near our town? Yeah. And having a phone that you can check information like that is really important. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, though, I you know people will know they call me in two three weeks later. Later, I noticed the message and call it back. Yeah. I hate the thing. I hate the thing. But um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's something about poetry that's the opposite of all that stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the speed of information is so overwhelming in the modern world. But then poetry, you know, my friend Eric Campbell has that book, Arguments for Stillness, which I just think is the perfect um, you know, the sense of what poetry is, which is like slowing down and 
noticing your life instead of instead of thinking about how it's organized in a tweet and consuming, you know, 500 different points of data every five minutes. That's right. Um, so no, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, things were just popping up at us constantly, even as I'm as I'm as we're talking here, I can see emails sort of popping up in the corner of my screen. I mean, that's that's the world that we live in. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think I do think that that's why books will always have a, a place, because even if you have an iPhone and you're reading a poems on the website, which is great, I'm glad everybody does it. There's yeah. still all these notifications. And if you're holding a book, there's no pop up. You know, it's just the just the words. There's no banner ad that's going to, yeah. you know, intrude on your thought process as you're reading. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, let's see. Let's hear another poem. Okay. Um, I'll read a poem called uh, Piano. Um, maybe this is as close as I ever, I ever get to writing an Ars Poetica. Um, so Piano. To the movers paid in pizza and sweating in a darkening stairwell. No moonlight sonata, but a moon of a kind imposing its shadowy grandeur and girth, its unrelenting pull upon the earth, felt along make-do ropes straps, lines that quiver and work, deep into the flesh, deeper groans, mother of gods, and another concerted heave to surmount a single step, this slow, inglorious agony of ascension. Yeah, I just love those descriptions too, piano, the movers carrying up the stairs. Um, <laughs> And another, yeah, and that is how poems come out, isn't it? <laughs> Oftentimes, <laughs> line by step by step struggle. Um, so, so um, you're a professor at, at the University of Utah. Um, right. What is uh, do you teach creative writing, or do you teach um, other types of literature? What is it that you teach, and, and how does that? And what what um, how does how do you give your your process to students? I haven't taught creative writing for a few years, um, um, but I have I have taught creative writing classes in the past. Um, a couple of the classes that I'm working on now with students, um, there's a class on on nature writing that I that I do, which I really enjoy, um, and a class on gods and monsters. And in fact, uh, her kind, <laughs> uh, which was you know featured in the in the introduction. Um, that, that's a poem that I, that I worked through with my class as well. Um, so, so th those, those are, those are, uh, two of the classes I, I teach in a, a program called the honors program and a, a program called the leap program, which is a, a freshman only, uh, program. Um, so I, I, I really, enjoy, I really enjoy that. Yeah. And, um, and how do you think about Utah? Um, you know, you mentioned being not really a religious person and, and I think of Utah, of course, you know, it's, it's a very Mormon state. I, we love going up there. It's such a beautiful place. Um, is, is the university of Utah very Mormon? Um, I think it's about half maybe, mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of the students, something like that. Um, um, which is, which is true of Salt Lake, uh, in general. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, I mean, for, it was a bit of an adjustment coming from Canada and coming from Montreal, but um, I love, I love to hike and to ski and there's, I, there's probably fewer places, you know, there's few places on earth where you can do that as easily as you can do it here. I mean, literally 10, 15 minutes and you're up in the mountains. Um, uh, so, so, so yeah, I, I really, I really enjoy it here. Um, um, yeah, I miss Canada at times. I miss I miss being in a big cosmopolitan city. But um, there's a lot of things that I really like about Salt Lake. And it's funny in Salt Lake. I mean, although you do get that more, you know, uh, conservative religious uh, sensibility, 
you also get kind of that counter reaction. So I've never seen so many tattoo parlors and yeah. coffee shops and so on and dive bars, you know, uh, per, per, per capita that than in Salt Lake. So you, you do get that kind of counter reaction as well. It's an interesting place. Yeah, that's what I was kind of wondering, right? Because that, that was our, you know, we've been up there several times and uh, it's just, it's gorgeous just in general. But then um, there is that interesting vibe, which, you know, where poetry fits in there is a kind of an interesting thing. Um, um, so, yeah. so you, you mentioned like loving hiking and nature. Um, how does nature play, you know, into the, you know, why is, why is nature poetry such a, a thing that we're drawn to? Like so much poetry is drawn to nature. Why do you think that is? I think, I think it's like poetry, you know, we were talking about poetry as being this place of, of stillness, um, um, you know, this kind of oasis, this reprieve. And I think, I think nature is very much the same thing. So it's, it's, uh, very much the same kind of experience, at least for me. Um, I'm not often sort of immediately inspired to write when I when I um, am immersed in nature. My, I, often I'll get you know back from a trip, and my mother will invariably ask me, you know, you were at the Grand Canyon, you know, did it inspire you to write? And and the answer is usually no. I mean, not not immediately, but then I'll you know months later. I'll be sitting down to write and, you know, I'll write about a toilet or something. And all of a sudden, you know, those, those memories and those experiences from the Grand Canyon will come back and somehow the Grand Canyon will get imported into that, into that poem. So it's, for me, it's, it's personally, it is a kind of a reprieve, mm -hmm. just that, just that place of stillness. And I think in terms of my writing, it kind of seeps in gradually. I very rarely um, write a poem, uh, you know, using nature as a, as a direct source of inspiration, but it, it, it finds its way in. Yeah. It's almost like, it, you know, it cleanses your palate, you know, it's yeah. like the ginger while you're eating a sushi yeah. or something, you know, it, it yeah. sort of resets everything being out there yeah. and, and gets rid of all the clutter of the, uh, you know, all the pop-ups we were talking about before. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if anybody has any questions for Mike, um, leave them in the chat windows on YouTube or Facebook and I will pass them along. I got to scroll up and make sure I didn't miss any already. But uh, let's hear the next poem, Mike. Sure. So this is a poem called, um, this is also from Addendum to a Miracle. Um, it's a poem called Love. And I think it can be uh, read or heard as a, as, a, as a poem to a particular person. Um, but I think it's also a poem um, that's sort of a love poem to the planet. So love. You mean the world to me, meaning the only way to see you is from outer space. As you know, I have little aptitude for space travel. Like the monkey they launched into orbit, I tend to push buttons at random and eat too much people food. Where am I going with this thing? I know the dark is all around us, love. I'm out here waving to you, only to you, round and green and blue. That was love again from Addendum to a Miracle. I think that's a good example of how nature gets into my poems, right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't start there, but then somehow or other it kind of works its way in by the end. Yeah, um, so you mentioned um, liking sports too. And, um, and I'm kind of in that position as well, where, you know, I, most of my friends I play sports with, that's like what I do and they're not poets and, uh, have no idea. It's like this weird thing that I, you know, I'm, I'm doing a podcast this morning and they're, they'll say, Hey, how was the podcast? As we go hit some softballs later. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so how is, how do your friends, how does poetry fit in your life in that way? Um, is it something that, that, that you, I was talking to somebody else, I think it was Dick Westheimer actually about, um, 
about getting people who are non-poets to engage with poetry. Um, and it seems like, you know, we should be able to do that, but it's hard. So how do you, how does poetry fit in with like the rest of your life? Yeah. I mean, you talk about cleansing, cleansing your palate with nature. Maybe, you know, you gotta, you gotta shoot some hoops with, with non-poets every once in a while, just to cleanse your palate as well. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I, most of the people that I, that I, that I hang out with now um, are, are not poets. Um, um, and, and I, 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 I do think that's, that's helpful. I mean, you want, you want to be hanging out with people who care about poetry as well. Um, interestingly, I had a, a friend um, who I grew up with, who had, he was an engineer, a mechanical engineer, had no interest whatsoever in writing books. And I was actually able to suck him into um, to writing writing some haiku and reading haiku. So, um, so, so there I go. So that even when when I have non poet uh, friends, um, they, they you know I, I try I try and bring them in. But in other ways, I think it is helpful to have those those um, those spaces. You know, those parts of your life that aren't uh, you know immersed in poetry necessarily. Um, um, I, I didn't. I didn't grow up in a family where people read poetry or wrote poetry. I mean, there were there were certainly books books around the house, but um, this is something that I think people in my family, even to this day, probably find a little bit strange that I that I'm doing. Um, but they've kind of come around come around as well. Um, so I, I I think I think it is important to have a life outside of of, of poetry and, and, and writing and, and reading. Um, um, if for no other reason, just be able to draw inspiration from, from different things. I mean, I think of someone like William Matthews, um, who's one of my very favorite poets, writes about baseball and about basketball um, with, a real, with a real attentive eye, right? But you've got to, you know, or jazz, right? So things that have nothing necessarily immediately to do with poetry, but he finds a way um, to sort of bring them, bring them into the world of poetry as well. So there is that overlap, but I try, I try as best I can to kind of um, um, keep those spaces in my life where I'm, where I'm, where I'm not always thinking about poetry. Yeah. And that's what, kind of what I was wondering about, because your poems seem, um, you know, really good gateways for people who don't usually read poetry because they're so, they're short, they tend to be short. And so they're not intimidating. They tend to be really rich with image and, um, and have a story that's like hidden beneath it. You can, that you can follow, like you kind of know what's going on in the poems. Um, do you, do you think of that as your audience? Like who, who's your audience? Do you think of people, you know, picking up a book who don't usually read poetry as reading it? Or do you think of like poets reading it or do you just not think of it and you're just trying to amuse yourself? What, what is your audience? Who do you think of reading you? I think, I think when I'm writing, I, I typically, um, what I'll do to sort of as a, as a kind of uh, warm up, um, I'll, I'll read poets that I really admire. I, I imagine you probably do something of the same, you know, you, you just kind of try and get into that, that, that mind frame. So I think, I think when I'm, I'm writing, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, William Matthews and Larry Levis and Jane Hirschfield and, you know, these, these people that I really, really admire, um, you know, how might, how might they read this? But yeah, I, I, I do, I do always have in the back, back of my mind with someone who had no, uh, you know, prior experience in, 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 in reading poetry, what, what would they think of this? Would they think of this as being uh, elitist or pretentious? And that, that does cross my mind. I'm, I, I, I try as much as possible to be aware of a reader. And I think, you know, you, you often will read poems in, in say magazines and you think, is this is this writer in any way you know you know observant of the fact that someone someone else is going to be is going to be reading this someone that doesn't have that frame of experience that you're that you're drawing from here necessarily so I'm always trying to 
sort of change seats. I'm, I'm the writer, and then I go around on the other side, and I, I, I try and occupy the role of the of being of being the reader, um, and, and thinking and thinking in, the, in those terms. How would how would someone do they have enough information to be able to kind of grasp what I'm what, what, what I'm trying to do? And have I left enough room for them to be able to kind of import their own their own experiences, their own memories, and so on? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you think about that? About um, you know, you mentioned having room to import your own memories. Um, do, do you think that do do you think about how I don't know t- leaving that space? Like, do you think about relating to things like like we talk on the critique of the week that we do every Friday about how important it is to be specific, and a lot of people um, think about you know, try to write in sort of more generalities so that it can be more relatable. And we always say that the, 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 you know, the feeling lives in the specific. So, so how do you, how do you think about that? Do you think about, about re- leaving room for the, for people to enter in that way? Like, like that they can relate to the, the ideas and images you're presenting? I think, I think a lot of the language that I use, um, and this I think in, in many ways relates to my own, my own weakness and my own limitations in terms of how I view the world I tend not to be, um, I'm observational, but I'm not observational at the level of detail, whereas somebody, you know, I, um, I, I might have a car parked out in front of my house for, for two weeks, and then if it turned out that car was stolen and the police came to my house and said, you know, was there a car parked in front of your house? And I'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like, what, what, what was it like? And I'd be like, I, I don't know. It had four wheels. It was a car. I don't know. Right. So a lot of my specificity tends to be along the lines of saying it was a dog, it was a cat, it was a car, right? So I, 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 I hope I'm allowing uh, a reader to sort of think about what, what kind of dog they, they might imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, to some extent, it, that is, that is uh, a style that I've developed, as I say, sort of that, 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 is, that is derived from my own, my, own, my own limitations, my own observational limitations. But I think it, all, it, 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 it can work because it does allow that reader that space. So, so is it specific? I hope it's, I hope it's specific in terms of giving uh, a reader a clear picture, mm-hmm. but then allowing them to kind of you know, color in between the lines if they like. Yeah, there's a, I don't know, I'm trying to get a, a handle on what I mean, but there's like a little, like a vignette kind of sense to your, your poems, you know, mm-hmm. that they, they exist in their own little space and you see a little scene play out. And, yeah. um, and I, I think it's, it's a really cool way to write. And I think that people can appreciate it maybe. Um, you know, I was at the, um, I was at a festival a couple of weeks ago and I had to try to pick poems that a general audience of non-poets, cause I imagined people just come in and leave after one poem, you know, it's just like a, an, a little art fair was going on on one side and there's a little poetry stage and just to be polite, like people are going to sit down. So yeah. thinking about that in terms of like what somebody would appreciate and, um, it, it's really hard actually, like thinking from that perspective really twists your mind around a little bit. You have to realize that. How, how um, you know, esoteric and, and just in our own little world poets tend to be. And so breaking out of that's tough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, like I said, I, 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 you know, one, one metaphor you can think of is, uh, you know, if you think of, of, of a poet sort of like a, a magician and, and to some extent, I mean, that's what you're doing, right? You're pulling that rabbit out of the hat. You're making something happen. You're hoping that people will have that sort of aha sort of moment. Um, but, you know, a magician, you know, we assume would go out on the stage before before the performance and sort of look around and think, you know, how would somebody in the balcony, you know, view this view this act? How would somebody who's sitting in the front row would it be would it be too close? Would it be too far? What about those who are sort of sitting, um, you know, in, in the side rows? Are they going to see too much? Right. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it is it is a performative act, and, I, and as much as possible, I'm trying to think. You know, how are how are how is a reader or different kinds of readers? How are they going to experience um, what it is that I'm trying to trying to communicate here? Yeah, it occurred to me that um, the person who does it, the poet who does it the best, is probably Billy Collins. You know, you can just see that he's thinking about everybody. I love that metaphor of like people in the wings and up in the balcony, but you can see him th- doing that the whole time, very consciously. And then it's no wonder that he's the one that people love, you know, because he he cares about that. And I don't know, it was sort of a, um, for, for me personally, it was a, it was a moment of, of realization that, that, man, I mean, if you want readers, you have to care about how they're going to experience your poems you can't just write for yourself i mean that sounds i mean the way i'm describing it sounds in some ways awfully manipulative i mean to some extent it's it is it is also just you know this this expression of of feeling and and thought and very personal but i think there is that kind of meeting meeting halfway for sure yeah yeah for sure i mean it's just the way it has to go um so let's read the next poem i think it was uh dying right dying cheery stuff (laughs) So this is one of those poems that, you know, the title just kind of leads right into the, uh, into the first line. Dying is as natural as breathing. Who in the hell writes these things? I want to ask my doctor if he knows what we're given to read in his waiting room, but I don't. He says, take a deep breath and hold. Good. He says, now breathe normally. And I never can. I can never get it quite right again. Not until he's pronounced me fit to live. And even then, not until I've cleared his little white room and walk the immaculate hall where the hospital's ghostly benefactors line the walls and pressed my weight against the big revolving door, tumbling into the sunny afternoon mildly stunned that it's there and i was dying again from addendum to a miracle um clayton clark wants to know i mean you mentioned a few poets that you admire um, um but she asked which which poets do you admire and which ones do you teach and um and, and and i wonder more like not just who you admire but why like what do you admire about um certain poets like who who could you pick out for something that you admire i think there's some poets that well there's some poets I admire uh, and sort of seek to emulate um, uh, or at least to, to build off of in terms of style. Um, I think Charles Simic is somebody like that. Um, uh, I think I've mentioned Jane, Jane Hirschfield already, uh, Laureen Neidecker. Um, and there's other poets that I, that I, that I read and I really admire um, that I, that I don't, that I, that I know I, I don't share much in common with uh, in terms of, in terms of, you know, stylistic affinities. Um, uh, someone like Larry Levis um, is, is a poet I, I tremendously admire. Um, James Wright is someone, is someone that I really, I really think is great. Um, there's a poet, uh, there's a poem by James Wright that's not usually anthologized, but if people want to run out and read it, you can find it online really easily. That, that is sort of a touchstone poem for me. Uh, it's, a, it's a poem uh, called Hook, um, which, is, which is just wonderful. Um, so th- 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 you know, those are some some of the, the, the poets I admire. I, I, I mean, I I you know read a great deal of Shakespeare and Milton and you know Wordsworth. I mean, my my uh, master's thesis was on Milton and Shelley, so I kind of have that iambic pentameter sort of as uh, sort of the wallpaper in the back of my mind, and I think that's that's important as well. Uh, Keats is somebody that I really love and admire. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I'm always, 
looking for um, different different kind of modalities. You know, somebody that's able to use humor. You mentioned Billy Collins is somebody like that who can take that to a different a different place. Um, um, you know, I think I think a, a writer like like say uh, uh, William, uh, uh, William Matthews, somebody that you you know is just so extraordinarily uh, smart. Um, but doesn't doesn't use his intelligence in a kind of uh, in, in a biting or cynical way. It gets to this place of warmth, uh, of humility. Um, that's something. That's something I look for. I think in in, in poets. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, and uh, and it's interesting I, to, to use your metaphor about the ants as words or words <laughs> as ants. You know, I think that there's a way of reading other poets like smokes the words out of their nest and he gets them moving around so you can, yeah. <laughs> you know, see them on the surface. There you um, go. You, got, you have a poem right there, I think, too. I think so. I think we wrote yeah. one together just now. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's hear. I think we have um, like three more poems that you want to read, and they're pretty short. So let's these, do Yeah, these, these three are all really short. So maybe I'll just read them. Um, uh, why don't you read two and then we'll finish out on the last one? Because I have okay. another question I wanted to pass along to. Sure. Um, death, here we go again. So this is another poem about death called Death. She brushed it aside and brushed it aside as we all did, the fly that kept landing in her casket. And I wonder, that, that's another poem from Rattle. And, that is um, a poem from Rattle. Yeah. Did that, so where does that, that image come from? Do you have any idea the source of that, the, the fly being brushed off? Is, is, was there something you saw that... that made that poem happen or um is it just something that spontaneously appeared in your mind i think i think it's one of those moments i've never been to a funeral where i've worried about a fly actually landing in someone's casket but um one 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 can well imagine right how that how that could happen and i think that's often where my poems begin you know the 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 possibility um and then just sort of exploring what that might what that might suggest Um, um and again it's 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 sort of um whistling in the dark. I mean, we're all, we're all, we're all terribly afraid of, of dying, but, you know, to, to find some kind of, some kind of humor there um, is, is I think, uh, you know, part, part of not only my process, but part of, I think, you know, uh, a kind of a survival mechanism. I mean, we all, we all do this, right. To uh, whether it's in poetry or another, in other ways, we're trying to find ways to uh, think about the unthinkable. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, I think part of what, part of what goes into a, a five line poem like this. If I can, uh, my explanation is going to be longer than the poem itself, which is never a good sign. But I think, I think it's always a good sign. I would say, <laughs> but, uh, let's, let's hear faith next. Sure. I read, I read a lot about dogs. Um, so this, this is one, one such faith. Whisper the word death in the ear of a dog and it hears walk. Yeah, that's great. Great little poem. And and I, I wondered too, as I was reading that, um, you're just, just talking again about trying to reach different audiences. It, it seems like, cause you do write about dogs a lot. And I just, I always try, I, I want more people to love poetry cause I love poetry. And so I'm always trying to think of things that, that would do it. But, but do you ever think of like putting together a chapbook of dog poems just so people can, who love dogs can, you know, read that, you know what I mean? I mean, is, is there idea, a way that we could branch yeah. out from, from just the traditional ways of publishing to get more people engaged because poems like this and, and there's like a good dozen, at least great poems. I just noticed flipping through the last couple of days um, about dogs that, you know, you could find, find an audience for that. That's a whole totally different audience. And we never even try, you know what I mean? Do you, do you ever think about that? 
I have not thought about that, um, but I like the idea. Um, uh, I have a lot of poems about snowmen as well. We could have a whole collection of a snowman um dogs yeah uh <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I mean, like, I, like I, little I, little poems in a gift shop you know or, that's it you know? that's it yeah <laughs> yeah it's probably been done i i would guess somebody has put together a collection about dogs yeah but but not great poems though i mean that's, oh, that's uh, the problem i mean if someone does it they're terrible poems so um <laughs> um well anyway so um who was it it was um Nate Jacobs says this is a master class on how to end a poem. And it's true. Your endings, I mean, with a, with a shorter style, the ending has to like both be surprising and, and um, expected at the same time in a real resonant way. It's hard to do. So how do you go about finding how to finish a poem? I'm glad he says that because I did, I did a reading recently and someone came up to me after the reading and said, I, I really liked your poems, but you know, um, they just, just when I was kind of getting into them, it just, it just ended. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm, I'm very Canadian. So I was like, I'm very, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Um, but, but he said, no, 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 it's good. It's good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think there's a, there's a kind of an occupational hazard in writing very short poems and that, you know, you, you can you come to realize when there's a kind of a, a possible break point. And there's certainly the possibility of sort of lopping off a poem when if you would let it run for another, you know, five, 10 lines, it might, it might become a stronger poem. So um, I think that for me, the end of the poem always sort of leads me back to the beginning of the poem and leads me back even, even to the title. Oftentimes I'll play with a title or with a first line for, for months and sometimes even years um, before I feel like it kind of, you know, sufficiently connects to the end of the poem. So I, I often think of a poem as, you know, you know, it's like you're going down, like a kid going down a slide, right? Does the kid want to go back up, go back up the stairs again and go back down the slide? I mean, that's kind of the, the litmus test. Um, so I, I, I mean, thank you. Thank you, Nate, for, 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 for appreciating that. Um, but, but it's, it's, that's, that's never easy. It's never, it's never easy to know when to, um, to, to, to end a poem and how it is that it's going to, it's going to encourage a reader to go back to the beginning, but that's, that's the objective. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that it's like a struggle because I was thinking about it without even noticing I was thinking about it in that, um, that poem, if I jumped off a bridge, um, or if everybody jumped off a bridge, I can't remember the exact title, but it was yeah. the one in rattle and it's one of your longer poems. It goes on for a page yeah. and a half. Yeah. And I was, I was wondering like why, cause there were certain, I was noticing there were certain places you could have ended that poem, but then you kept going and the, the pushing it, there's some kind of interesting tension in the book. I don't even remember which book it's in, but, um, uh, between the, um, cause the, the poems sort of are shorter. And then, and then when there's that longer one, there's like a tension between the lengths where you're like anticipating the ending and then it keeps going and pushes <laughs> past it, which is interesting. Um, do you, do you maybe want to read that poem, but also just talk about like, why did that poem go on farther? Yeah, I got I got into my kind of Whitman Whitman mode there, that kind of anaphora going right where you get that. I, I think when there's a lot of repetition at the beginning of a line, it kind of encourages me to, to, to keep going. So if the poem sort of begins like that, I might I might get on a roll. Um, um, so I found it. It's on Identity Miracle, page 46, if you're looking for it. There it is. Yes. Yeah, so as you say, it's called, So If Everyone Else Jumped Off a Bridge, I'd never get over the loneliness. I'd be surprised as all hell. I'd say it like a sutra, everyone. I'd rave, I'd mourn, I'd sulk. I'd run out of food and have to go shopping. 
I'd bring along a credit card and a driver's license. I'd roll through stop signs nervously. I'd maneuver my shopping cart through the cavernous aisles, reading the advertised specials as if I was taking part in a zombie movie, becoming by turns the victim, the zombie, the actor. I'd wonder at the sheer number of mirrors in the world. I'd go to bed early thinking I'm going to wake up and I'd be afraid to go out at night like a refugee, like a woman. I'd stop showering because someone might be on the other side of the curtain with a knife now that there was no one to protect me, now that there was no one. I'd stop showering just because I could. I'd start thinking that maybe this was, this was all meant, it all meant I was immortal, which I had long suspected was the case. And then I'd reason that just because everyone else had jumped off a bridge, it didn't follow that I was going to live forever. I'd want to die much of the time. I'd stop writing poems, nothing more than a mild shock, like opening the fridge in the middle of the night to find the power had gone out. I'd read the same shit differently and by candlelight eventually. I'd translate the faces in the photo album into braille. I'd scan the dawn sky for airplanes, the hedges for lost pets. I'd cry for joy hearing a sparrow, a cricket, whatever. I'd know the month and the day of the week, so help me God. I'd drive to bridges and then to the bridge, iron railings in a rolling fog. I'd gaze down and into the onrushing water, into my own improbable shadow. Yeah, it's just another great poem. It's so if everyone jumped off a bridge, and that's from Addendum to a Miracle. And it's just interesting the way that almost every line could be an ending there. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of each line has that feel to it. And then uh, and then it keeps going. Do you remember, um, did, you know, did you know you were going to go to the bridge at the end? Was there a point at which, you know, that was the destination? Um, no, I don't think so. And I think that's that sense of discovery. Um, um, this this is a poem like a lot of my poems that just began with a with a a, a piece of language a fragment of language mm-hmm. you know the parental so if everyone else jumped off a bridge you know what and and I just I just I just went with it and you know see how far it takes me um, and as I said I think I think the 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 very repetition that started in the poem um, um, allowed me to 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 keep going not not to lop it off um, at an early stage um, but no I didn't you know is that kind of David Kirby, the, the wonderful thing that he does that he sort of brings it back around. Um, and who knows, maybe that was, that was sort of playing in the back of my mind as well. Um, but no, I hadn't, I hadn't, you know, it wasn't preordained that we were going to come back to the bridge. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's just so much poetry in that sort of taking something literally, you know, that we take for granted yeah. in that line like that. I think, uh, I think it's about Brian Constantine talks about like, like alien poems or something like that. Cause he's like, explain oh, the world to me like it's too. an alien. Yeah, <laughs> and then, yeah. and that, that's how the poem comes to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we're about out of time. Do you want to finish off with the last poem? Sure. Um, this is also a poem that appeared in rattle and it's a really short one. Um, it's called the way. The fourth leg of the dog with now only three was the, in the way one he'd lift in order to pee. 
Yeah, another great poem to end on. That's a great that sense of humor that the that, that Issa is there in that poem for sure. Um, Mike White, thanks for being a guest. It was great to get to know you a little bit um, after knowing your poems for so long. Um, thanks for joining us, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Tim. This was this was great. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate yeah, it. Yep, take care. Yes, that was Mike White um, with his two books, A Denim to a Miracle and How to Make a Bird with Two Hands, both of which I highly recommend. They, they are on my, I pick them up regularly. So please do pick up a copy. Um, you can find Mike White's newest book, um, A Denim to a Miracle at a, at a Waywiser Press. That's Waywiser, W-A-Y-W-I-S-E-R hyphen press.com. So pick up that. Also, How to Make a Bird with, with Two Hands. And uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to go to the open lines. And you can do prompt poems. Um, the prompt was um, something about something, someone saying something strange in an elevator was the prompt this week. I can't remember the exact wording off the top of my head. Um, but you can share those. You can share poems about current events. You can share recent publications that you're proud of. That's always fun. You give a link, and I can just show off the uh, literary magazine as well. So join us now on Zoom for the open lines. I'm going to take a quick break, stand up and stretch, and I will be right back with those open lines. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Um, let me see. So um, the prompt for this week was to... Um, let me find the prompt really quickly. Where was it? It was to... Um, on the elevator. Here it is. On the elevator... A stranger says something unexpected. That was the prompt for this week. I'm on an elevator. A stranger says something unexpected. And this was my uh, poem really quick. I'll do my poems first. Uh, Megan didn't have one this week, but mine was briefs. And it's brief. Briefs. With a startled look, she enters the elevator, and down we fall through all the levels of awkward silence. Finally, in the lobby, she tells me, but not unkindly, and there's nowhere to go but up. That is my little poem for this week. Um, and my new rule is now I have to write a poem every week, no matter how little time or um, or anything I have, because if I, if I give myself any slack, I'll slack off. <laughs> so that is my poem for this week. Now let's see what everybody else has. Let's go first. Um, and I'm going to remind everybody, too, that um, when you share, so share a poem on Zoom. Um, come on, I'll, I'll unmute you and bring you on. And then go back to the stream wherever you're watching before, so you can read along, too, which is much, it's an added experience to be able to see the poems. So just... Pop on when it's your turn, read your poem, and then go back to where you were listening. So let's see what we have here. Let's go to um, Anna Yin first. And let me um, unmute Anna. Or, yeah, unmute yourself. There you go, Anna. Wonderful to hear the interview and everything. And uh, I, I will share a poem. It's like uh, in 2013, I visited Las Vegas, and uh, I, I had a wonderful uh, interview interesting experience and I almost forgot the poem but then I, I found your poem then I, I found it and I rewrite the poem so the poem titled Elevated Thoughts excellent okay Elevated me, yeah yeah let me hang on one second there okay. we go go ahead Elevated Thoughts the elevator door opens I step in a strange lady hands me her card she smiles and insists, I can read really good things about you. I frown and ponder on the shadow of Eiffel Tower through the glass panel, lingering on my tanned skin and splashes from the swimming pool below, so much like another white lotus. The sun starts setting 
in frames behind the building. I long for a romantic dinner somewhere. I turn over the card. It inscribes psychic readings, restore lost loves. The night curtain will soon drip down. I wonder who will be in the light limelight. I step out. The wheel by Paris in Las, in Las Vegas keeps spinning. Oh, that was wonderful. I love the image you ended on there. Thanks so much for sharing that, Anna. Yeah, it's a true story. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's excellent. Thank you. Okay, let's go next to um, let's go to Dick Westheimer because he's been on um, later lately. Let's go on to Dick now. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How you doing? Good. You know those uh, those Mike White poems that I noticed early on about how what a difficult time you had getting them on the screen. They were so short. They were wonderful. Yeah, that's the thing I got to uh, remember with the, the shorter poets. It always happens. With the longer poets, by the time I get there, they're still in the first stanza and it's all okay. But uh, but with Mike, you know, and other people, the haiku poets, I was having a real tough time with uh, like Roberta Beery um, for the same reason. Because by the right. time you get to the haiku, the haiku's over. <laughs> But well, she's, um, she's coming to uh, next year to Cincinnati. Cincinnati is going to have the Haiku Association of oh. America conference here. And she, theoretically, she'll be here. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm sure she will. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I wish I could go. Maybe I, maybe I will. <laughs> Cincinnati yeah. is a nice place. Not too far from well, my hometown. If you do, we can, you know, fist bump. Or, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. I'd have you out to the farm. Uh, well, terrific. Yeah. Um, uh, time for one or two? Um, I think we have time for two. I mean, yeah, let's, let's do two. Why not? Okay. Uh, first, I'll do my prompt poem, which is called The Answer. Okay, let me and, uh, let me pull up the other one that you submitted, right? Uh, the other one I submitted, I submitted two. It would be the one Schrodinger's Cat. Okay. Yeah, I think the rule today is uh, two poems unless one of them is terribly long. And I don't think either of these are. So. Or terrible. I don't, <laughs> well, terrible. We'll, we'll, we'll listen to terrible poems, too, as long as they're not terribly long. <laughs> so, okay. uh, so you want to do the uh, prompt poem first. The answer? Sure. Okay. Uh, the answer. Uh, it wasn't what he said, but where he stood. On elevators, folks maximize the distance between each other, but this guy stood right up next to me as if we were two strap hangers forced face to face on a crowded F train. Before I could move, he blurted out one of those W questions that really isn't a question. What is the meaning of life? I could feel the elevator cab shudder, could see his hand blotched and gnarled, palsy against the rail. I was shaken, but taken in by his smell, a bit like laundry detergent or lingering cherry pipe tobacco reminded me of my dad's bent stem briars. And rather than squirm out of the way, I looked at him directly, put my hand on his one that shook so badly and said, I love you, brother. That's the best I can do. Oh, that's great. I love that, Dick. I didn't see that ending coming. That was, that was excellent. And um, it reminds me of, uh, of another, I should have written about a different story. I, I just remembered one weird elevator experience I had that I recalled. Um, but let's hear the other one. So the other one is, uh, you want to do Schrodinger's cat? Was that the one? Yeah, th this is, this is a weird effort. I think this is this, is this the pantoum form where you, uh, you know, each line ends it's a guzzle. with a guzzle. Thank you. Yeah. 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 This is a good one. I, I mean, the ending, everybody, um, 
I remember this one from uh, reading it yesterday. Then the yeah. uh, the ending is great, so everybody be prepared. So, um, and just for a little background, Schrodinger's cat. I do say it in the poem, but it's like as long as the cat is in the box, you don't know if it's alive or dead. So, according to quantum theory, it's both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so if it's a if it's a particle, then it knocks over the poison, and if it's a wave, it doesn't, and it's both until or neither until you check. Is right. is the idea of that thought experiment? So uh, this this was in response to Shireen Abu uh, Akla, I can't pronounce her name, who was the uh, Palestinian American journalist who was shot um, by mm-hmm. a bullet. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Tragic story, and 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 who knows, you know, probably yeah, what happened. That was sort of sort of the point yeah. of this whole this whole place. So Schrodinger's cat, the murdered journalist, and the ancient bones. For those who loved and admired Shireen Abu Akla. David slays Goliath, then 10,000 more, including his lover's husband. What men will do for love? The Genesis myth says my people were promised land. Some believe in myths. Some believe in a vengeful God. Some in a God of love. Every place is built on a more ancient place. Bones, stones on bones, all the way down. Each bone was born of penetration, which is sometimes an act of love. Schrodinger's cat is both alive and dead until we look in the box. Doesn't matter how you feel about cats, if you feel their teeth or love to hear them purr. The box called Israel, called Palestine, called Canaan, is the Schrodinger's cat of war-torn places. It is a box filled with a god of hate and love. The angel Gabriel reports good news to some, interprets others' visions, and trumpets love. Shireen was killed by the occupiers, or the occupied, what's in The box of possibilities depends on who's the neighbor, who is the neighbor you're supposed to love. Even if we knew which gun fired the shot, even after the lid is popped, the murder is like the promise, is like the cat in the unopened box, is not like love. We named our firstborn Gabriel. In the ER, he tends to victims of violence who sometimes create victims of violence. The bloody work is often hard to love. Yeah, great poem. Thanks for sharing that too, Dick. Schrodinger's Cat, The Murdered Journalist, and The Ancient Bones. An excellent guzzle. I, I'm, I've learned how to say that right now. It's guzzle. Right, now now I remember what the, what the form is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, great. Always a pleasure, Dick. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Okay, let's go next to... Uh, let's go to... Um, Jennifer Elise Wang. Hey. Hey, Jennifer, how you doing? I'm good. I submitted a second one since you said there was time, but I don't know if it... Oh, yeah, um, let me see. Yeah, I got a, Yeah, I have two right here. So Ride okay, the Elevator so, and the second poem. Yeah, the second poem is uh, <laughs> The Innocent. Um, and that was actually from last week's uh, attempt at... It was my first demi-sonnet attempt. Oh, and, cool, cool. Yeah, I... I tossed it in there because we've, we've been talking about dogs. I'm a cat person. And so I thought it was kind of appropriate to have a cat poem. Excellent. Well, since you explained that already, why don't you start with that, The Innocent? Yeah. 
Okay, the innocent. Shining eyes on a sweet face. You always look like you're smiling, except when you think I'm mad. Then I hear the dry mouth smacks and you flatten yourself as to disappear until you perceive I'm pleased again. My precious child, my baby, my kitten. Uh, that's excellent. That's the demi sonnet form, and you know it's the kitten flattened rhyme there. Yeah, that's a seven yeah, line poem with a with a rhyme kind of hidden at the, on the last word. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. The <laughs> this was actually inspired by Erin Murphy because she she talked about uh, I think it was her mother's cat in one of her poems. So I was like, oh hey, I'll write about my cat. Oh, that's perfect. So my second one is a second attempt at a demi sonnet with uh, this week's prompt. Um, writing in the elevator with a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, I'm a scientist by day, so I did end up in the elevator with a Nobel Prize winner. Um, did not say anything. The, this, the second half of this was inspired by something my partner wrote when I took him to a lecture and was like, I felt super awkward because he is not a scientist, or he's a scientist now, but he wasn't. And so it was a random comment. And so it's, it's a melding of two events <laughs> that happened in real life. So writing the elevator with a Nobel Prize winner. The typical trip up to the sixth floor of work is interrupted by a Nobel Prize winner, a rare occasion he is actually in the lab. I shuffle silently and rack my caffeine-filled brain for an insightful comment on innate immunity or a unique question about tumor necrosis factor alpha. But the bell dings and I blurt out, I like the way you speak. Oh, very good. Yeah, another excellent uh, a demi sonnet. And and what is it? Is it cancer science you do? What kind of science are you? Uh, yeah, I'm actually in. Uh, I'm, I'm part of a husband and wife team lab. So the husband does cancer, and I do a traumatic brain injury. But oh, wow. um, yeah, this is. Uh, it was Bruce Boitler who works at uh, UT Southwestern now, and. Um, yeah, he does cancer in immunology. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. That was excellent. And always great to have scientists in the house, too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, take care. Uh, let's go next to Nivedita. Actually, while uh, we get Nivedita up, I'm going to admit more people. Okay. Hey, Nivy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. <clears throat> so what do you have for us? Um, sort of a prompt poem. <laughs> I say sort of because it starts off with the prompt and finishes not off the prompt precisely. <laughs> well, that's perfect. I mean, we want we want poems that start and go somewhere surprising. That's always the goal, I think. So, so the the choice is this poem. The choice. Two elevators diverge in a silver lobby. One slow and steady to the pearly gates up above, and the other the mobile express to hell. Beware, for both elevators are hand and glove, for I was on that then, and now I'm on this, said, uh, well, a stranger, for I'd never seen him before, and knew instantly I would never see him once more. Well, heaven seems too shallow for one such as me. After all, I've never been on a goody-goody spree, and hell's such a messy inferno for someone who has not done all that bad, though. Wait, why is this even a choice for me? After all, I'm a young gun with perfectly fine feet. So despite all the stares and glares aimed right at me, I take the stairs so I can stop right where I want to be. <laughs> That's excellent. Very fun poem. Love the, love the rhyming through there. Uh, good stuff. Thanks for sharing that, Nivy. Thank you, Tim. Have a great Sunday. Yep, have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. And let's, uh, let's go next to uh, Julian Matthews, who is also in a, uh, in a faraway time zone. Hey, Julian, how you doing? 
Hi. Hi, Tim. Yeah, good to see you. Yeah, good to be here. Um, so I just have the prompt poem. Great. Don't run. I have it right here. Yeah. So here goes. Um, Don't run, says my neighbor as I run down the corridor to get to the lift he just got into. Don't run as if I were a five-year-old at a poolside party. Don't run as if I was a three-year-old at a mall. Don't run as if I was a one-year-old at a park. Don't run, he repeats as I make it. You know, we old people must take care. I ran once and fell, sprained my ankle, took a whole month to heal. I looked up at him for the first time in years, the white hair, the bald patch, the sage eyes, and thought of saying, by the way, how old are you? An age comparison as a morning conversation started. Then I remembered his bout with cancer. He survives, wrote a book. I stay silent. We are two uncles descending. The lift reaches its parking floor, just one floor before mine. Bye, he says, as if it were our last. Bye. A great poem. Thanks for sharing that, Julian. Great sort of double turns there. Um, excellent stuff. And it's always good to see you. Thank you. Yep. Bye. This is uh, Julian Matthews with Don't Run. And next, let's go to uh, Sharon Ferrante. Hi, Tim. Hey, Sharon. How are you doing today? Okay. Thank you so much for, for the interview with Mike. Yeah, I really loved his poems. Yeah, he's a, he's a good one. Great. I have a prompt poem. Uh-huh. Um, it did happen <laughs> in, in Salem, Massachusetts, one time when I was there. It's called, I Bet You Have a Hangover, The Stranger on the Elevator Says, in a Half Whisper. I watch his lips shape them out while his dreadlocks cascade with the scent of dragon's blood. We hit the floor, that damn button I pushed. It likes to laugh when his stomach falls. I tell him yes. I danced all night to reggae with Reposado, watching everything and nothing drip from the walls. Then I kissed the drummer for a CD. The stranger says it was a great kiss. Oh, great story. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. I bet you have a hangover. Thank yeah, oh, thanks, that Sharon. Was fun. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, Thank always you. a pleasure. Thanks. Take care. Let's go to uh, Guy Chambers next. Hi, Tim. How's it going? Good. Hey, Guy. Yeah, I got a prompt poem here. There, like you said, I like the prompt. It was pretty good. I got so many different ideas where to go with this. So, this one I call Shadow. Okay, I got it up. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Step into the elevator the other day. Tucked in the corner, like an anchor, was a tall, slim gentleman. Standing still, without a will. A husk face, with no thoughts. Eyes distraught, staring straight ahead. Wearing a stowaway hat and a dusk, dusky, rusty jacket. 
way down with old army boots with threads out shoots. Very edgy, hands shaky. With a throaty voice, he speaks out. I lost my shadow. I felt the footsteps walk away the other day. Must find it before tomorrow, or it will be a widow's shadow. It took me by surprise. That was no lie. Before another thought, the elevator stops. Door opens to let me out. Beside me is my shadow. It's so to me with a promise not to let go before the light takes it away. Uh, very fun poem. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Guy. Shadow by Guy Chambers. Thanks, Guy. Yeah, I got the, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got the, another small one, a micro poem there, Arnold. You got it? Yeah, yeah I got it here. Gift. Go ahead with that, too. Sure. Yeah, this, uh, I like, like, say, let's like listen to those short poems there today. There, I always love short poems and even writing them. So this one I call Gift. Life's a gift. Ever once, go around. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks as always, Guy. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Okay, this guy Chambers, and let's go to Phil Stern. Hey, Phil, you here? I hope so. You are. Hey, Phil. Yeah, great to see you. I don't know if your camera's still not working, but uh, I hear you anyway. Hold on, let's see. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Okay. Yeah, so, so what is the poem you have? Okay, this is the old prompt, um, the dummy sonnet, except I tried to... Uh, Write something more for a more formal version. Interesting. It's seven lines, mm -hmm. uh, but I have a, a traditional quatrain and a couplet with the uh, fifth line and it, with an internal rhyme. Ah, nice. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's <clears> an interesting form. I think you have to rename it though. <laughs> so, what would you call this one? It's a a more official half sonnet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, reach it. I hope I sent you the right one. Reaching, yeah, reaching for, for the moon. Yep. Oh, okay. All right. The sea reaches for the moon twice each day, only to be pulled back in helpless, endless replay. Single humans feel a lunar ceiling, but thousands once communed to send an avatar to the moon. Oh, uh, that was excellent. I love that form too. The 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 more official take on the demi sonnet. Thanks for sharing that, Phil. Great poem. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for uh, Yeah, okay. it was a pleasure. Bye. And let's uh, go uh let's go to um TR Paulson back again. We'll start like we finished. Or finish like we started. Makes some more sense that way. Hey TR. Hey. Yeah, I didn't know if I should come back or not because I didn't want to be greedy as far as sharing, but... Oh, it's never, never greedy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I am very um, bold about promoting myself. I'm not shy. <laughs> the only problem is I think this, you sent a uh, image and it's very low resolution. So I don't think... Is it? Can, yeah, I don't think I can actually share it. It's not legible. Oh. Yeah, I didn't have time to retype it in. But um, the story behind it is that in my writer's group, we were having a discussion about you know, whether our published poems are better than our unpublished poems. And I agree with them that a lot of my best poems are still my unpublished poems mm -hmm. that have like 30 rejections on them and that aren't quite perfect. And um, one of um, the members of my group said that 
she tends to just sort of walk away from her published poems almost like because they tend to be old and not as good and she's not connected with them and I don't feel that way I you know I still am just as proud of my poems I've um poems I wrote a long time ago and especially um my first published poem that made me think about my very first published Mm -hmm. poem and how excited I was to get that acceptance letter you know it's not a poem I would necessarily write today but I'm still proud of it in its own way. Um, So it was published by a journal called Main Channel Voices, which is a lesser known journal and I I believe defunct now. I mean, some journals sort of go on and off from being defunct and they come back to life and I've lost track. Um, So yeah, I guess you'll have to just listen to it. (laughs) Um, Shoes, black leather um, blemished. Today it covered sweating corporate feet that taped tapped the beat of conference calls. Once it shielded another creature's sinews, blood and nerves from heat, wet and cold. Tonight, the shoes glisten alone as far away the same moonlight finds the dull leathered butcher's boots. There seems whole bone sawdust. Fat and blood stains form a skull, a nest, a fist, a flower transgressed by a fallen knife's scar. Laced, frayed, and tied, hang loose. The manager sits barefoot, studies columns on his laptop. Brown aisles assailed by numbers linked to faces unknown. In the dark corner, a black shoelace coils out and forms a noose. Yeah, excellent. We kind of got the shape of the poem on screen, anyway. Um, yeah, but, you, but you're. Oh yeah, uh, you can't read it. <laughs> yeah, but the love of form is still there. We could we see it. And I'm, I was thinking, I'm at the point um, when I'm doing it long enough, where if I read an old poem, it's like talking to my former self, which is an interesting experience. You know, you know, 20 years ago, you're a different person than you are today, and it, it's interesting to, to think of it that way too. Yeah, and and I just remembered. You know how proud my mom was of me when that first came out. I mean, she's probably going to cry about the poem I shared today, actually. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, and then showing it to my manager at work and him saying, well, I know it's not about me because I don't have brown eyes. <laughs> and just thinking about how uh-huh. we can tweak details and me thinking in that moment, oh, it just might be about you, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks, Tia. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And yeah, thanks for sharing great two poems today. Yeah. And thank you for all you do. Yeah, great. My pleasure. It's, it's just, I love this. So thank you. Okay. And I think that is it for um, people who um, are signed up. Let me see. So we, we do have other poems to read and share, though. So I'm going to leave the um, the Zoom open. If anybody still wants to pop on Zoom, um, we have at least 20 minutes. And I'm going to um, share some poems from people who couldn't be here but would like to share. So I got Ted Guevara, Carlton Johnson poem. I'm going to, I got the... Um, the hook poem I'm going to read by James Wright that uh, that Mike White mentioned, um, and then we have some other poems too. So, um, so let's try let's try that. Let's see what we have here. Um, let's go to let's go to Carlton Johnson's poem. This is beneath my feet, um, and this is Carlton says. Um, Here's a recent poem built on the prompt of state soils. Every state has a state soil. Interesting. Florida's state soil is called Mayaca, fine sand. And so I worked in a poem about the early explorers of the New World with the ones who were here. Very interesting. So this is Beneath My Feet by Carlton Johnson. Here we go. Beneath My Feet. uh... 
Okay, beneath my feet. Sand and more sandy soil, glass, ancestors, and progeny. This sand, myaka fine sand, ground from an abundance of cream-colored bits of gravel and palm trees, and aggregates of swamp and marsh, cool winters and harsh summers. It is often said of Florida that there is no there there, but tell that to the people who were here before the Spaniards invaded the lands of the Seminole, the Mecasuki, the Pensacola, the Appalachie, the Timucua, the Potona, the Tocobaga, the Miami, the Calusa, the Tequesta, and the Metacombe, who are still floating down the river of light, who are all here using sand and soil and flora and the fauna, the earth, air, fire, and water long, long before Juan Ponce de Leon landed here searching for the fountain of youth. That grass out there beneath my feet is rich with mayaca, sand soil as saw palmettos and hibiscus and loblolly pines grow here too. The state soil of Florida, mayaca fine sand is ageless, timeless. The sand here before the Spaniards found Florida and its many riches, um, no gold or silver, no Eldorado, but treasures still want to be found. So that is a, that is a great poem, Beneath My Feet by Carlton Johnson. Thanks for sharing that, Carlton. And let's read uh, Ted Govera's poem. This is The Hammer. Um, the Hammer poem suggests the basics would always contribute to daily life because they're reliable. To try to change them runs the gambit of failure and the burden of that failure being widespread. I had a hard time picking, but the name Orbison seemed Americana enough. And so he's got this uh, great photo. Of, Ted always includes great photos. I love it. And this is a, a photo of tools. Um, that Ted included, and here is his poem. This is sort of old-fashioned hand tools, wood-handled, um, you know, maybe 100 years old is the look of it um, for people who are just listening. And this is Ted's poem, Hammer. There's camaraderie once you're confined even for a moment. The slowest elevator situated in Bloomingdale's Lennox in Buckhead, Atlanta, takes eight seconds just to start up from LL. Riders would have no choice but to quell in silence. But not Orbison. Eight seconds to him would dull his very existence. At the fifth second of not moving, he blurted out, You know the hammer cannot be improved. Yeah, the tool, that one. They tried, but their effort was all for novelty and sales. It went out as quick as Sears and Roebuck, the company that promoted the electric craftsman thing. It kept eating the children's fingers. Leave well enough alone, I say. The people around Orbison in the elevator were likely power setters suited or dressed for the day to make life better for the masses. Orbison smiled at one of them, maybe to jam his contribution to humanity in the three seconds left of stillness. Great poem. That was Hammer by uh, Ted Govary, another elevator poem. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. Um, let me see what else we have. Let's see. We have... Um... So here, I think maybe Jerry Stephenson, he hasn't been on. I think maybe his Zoom is not working for him. So here is, um, um, he, it's not that easy. Um, it's not that easy. Uh, Samuel Clemens had difficulty with spelling his own name. Was Mark Twain to be held at blame? The joy of AKA as pleasure by some. Mr. Stings like a bee made many opponents flee. Reason are ripe for this foolish tripe unless it directs to aphorismic glory. 
To quote Samuel Twain, "'Tis a poor man that can spell a word but one way in support of brevity and dyslexic poets." That is uh, Jerry Stephens' poem, It's Not That Easy. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Jerry. And um, let's read this poem that uh, Mike... I'm just curious, I've never read it. This is Hook by James Wright. And uh, Mike White earlier said this was a touchstone poem for him, so I found it. This is courtesy of bestpoems.net. Probably, um, you know, posted here without permission, but, uh, but that is okay, too, usually. Hook by James Wright. Here we go. Hook by James Wright. I was only a young man in those days. On the evening, the cold was so goddamn bitter there was nothing. Nothing. I was in trouble with a woman, and there was nothing there but me and dead snow. I stood on the street corner in Minneapolis, lashed this way and that, wound rows from some pit, hunting me. Another bus to St. Paul would arrive in three hours, if I was lucky. Then the young Sioux loomed beside me. His scars were just my age. Ain't got no bus here a long time, he said. You got enough money to get a home on? What did they do to your hand, I answered. He raised up his hook into the terrible starlight and slashed the wind. Oh, that, he said. I had a bad time with a woman. Here, you take this. Did you ever feel a man hold 65 cents in a hook and place it gently in your freezing hand? I took it. It wasn't the money I needed, but I took it. Oh, that is a great poem, great story. Very similar to the elevator prompt, almost, except it's a bus stop. Uh, that's Hook by James Wright. And yeah, James Wright's a great poet. So this is a David Cook poem. Um, good for the project, a.k.a. the perfect is the enemy of the good. This is David Cook, um, and it's a revision of something from a previous prompt, he says. Um, um, it's too long for poetry boxes, but it is as pared down as I can get it. So, so David makes these poetry boxes that are really cool, like po- poem dispensers that he puts around town. Um, let's see. So here we go. This is Good for the Perfect by David Cook. Yeah. Good for her to have a friend who could not could when I could not. She loved to dance. Let her dance. Who was I to paskin against this angel at work? befriending her, flying with her. On returning, I'd hold her hand behind like she showed me and rub the loose rib under her shoulder. I shook this angel's hand, its loose grip, kept my thumb on its knuckles. My finger touched the gravel. I felt embedded in its palm. Its hand on her waist moved forward, her forward, and looking back seemed to say, trust me as far as you trust, her spine like knuckles on a fist. Her ribs clenched over her heart. It circled her, dragging its fingers along her until it vanished, save for its head. She stood heels. She, she stood in heels. She'd hesitate to wear with me light on her forehead. Still, I'd watch its hummingbird eyes look down, yet not losing the cubicle, the cuticle white below. Just the tips of its fingers spun round the funnel of its chest. I was assured of their platoni when it held her hand, saying, I'm like a girlfriend, with the breathy drawl of a confederate mother. Wings twitched with the cadence of its voice. I could see they were talking under your wing, if not for you, she sang. I thanked it for that. I thanked God for it. Legs long like contrails, blood on its knees, perfect in its movement, timing the drop of its hand in a percuss on her spine, unclasping her chest as she spun. 
bringing her in, pressing its thumbs to her temples, opening her eyes like luggage, lifting her like expectations, revealing all marital truths, then placing its fingers on the pleat of her lip. She forgot about me. And it's got this explanation too. Um, there's an Old Testament feel in this poem, especially evident in the use of the archaic Paskin, which I had no idea what that word was, P-A-S-K-E-N, meaning to forbid in regard to an orthodox belief. This, in addition to the genderlessness of the angel, the use of Marfan's disease symptoms, evidence of a fall and not so subtle hints of an effeminate southern drawl to describe it, attempt to layer and deepen the poem that is on the surface a lamentation of losing one's spouse to the allure and validation of work. One of my first poems written after my divorce when I was dating a wonderful woman who was also a dance studio owner and instructor. And yeah, I love the repetition of the it and the uh, the emphasis. Those are all, for people just listening, those are all italicized throughout the poem. And um, there's a real strength to that uh, that repetition. There was Good for the Perfect by David Cook. And um, let's see. So we have a tiny bit of time left. I'm going to share because... Um, uh, Rand Lennon isn't here. I don't think he sent audio yet either. Um, so Tuesday's poet is going to be Rand Lennon. And um, you know, Rand has the style that um, is just always wonderful. Um, he was the winner of the uh, Rattle Poetry Prize several years ago. And uh, this is a poem written in the same style about a very important topic. Um, let me just pull it up. This poem is, um, I'll read his... Uh, his note at the bottom. Then I'll read the poem. Then we'll do the Saiku, and that'll wrap up the show. So this is Ray and Lennon's note on this poem. Uh, the decorated country music superstar Naomi Judd, 76, recently took her life after decades of battle with mental illness. We learned this week how she died. She died a few days before being inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. Alana Miller, 19, a freshman college student at Jackson State University, recently committed suicide after posting a detailed suicidal note to Instagram about her struggles with what appeared to be depression. Two beautiful souls with so much to live for were killed by mental illness. As a therapist who also struggles with low-level depression, I wanted to highlight the hell of depression. When my car didn't start recently, I found the perfect metaphor to highlight the features of depression. People with depression tend to have low or no energy motivation to do basic tasks like getting out of bed. Arlana's note is perhaps the most detailed and heartbreaking suicidal note I have ever read. It's all there, distorted thinking, emptiness, ideation, hopelessness, etc. It's sad. It's a reality for millions of people each day. And so an important reminder here, and, and yeah, so um, both after um, the story of Arlana Miller, who, who committed suicide, and Nomi Judd, also this week. And uh, here's the poem. It's a longer one. Uh, so bear with me, but here we go. Um, in the uh, typical Rand Lennon style, it's a very long, slender, narrative, honest poem with great, great metaphors. Unplugged for Alana Miller and Naomi Judd and others who have died from mental illness. My car dies in a largely empty parking lot surrounded by fragrant family restaurants and three-story homes. I gather it's the battery. I don't have the energy for new trouble. It's a two-week-old used car with 30,000 miles on it, so it has no reason to die. I open the hood, and it's a dazzling how many parts it takes to keep the Ultima alive. It's as complicated as the human brain. There is still enough juice in the battery to power the radio, but not enough to turn over the engine. I sit in the car like a casket as Naomi Judd's Spotify voice fades. Love can be built, can built, can, love can build a bridge between my heart and yours. Don't you think it's time? 
I still don't believe her voice is gone. Killed by depression. She had no energy to fight death. My galaxy cell is dying also. It has 3% life left. I go to pee in the hell of a pizza joint's bathroom. Filth browns the seat. Grime lives on the stink. Back out in the chill, I check my phone to find the roadside assistance guy is called. I call back and he says I missed his call and so he had to help someone else. I explain I visited the bathroom. He says he would come after he is done, and he says I should keep my phone on. I tell him my phone is dying too. He says it kept keep it alive. I stand in the darkening cold. I feel empty as the bottle of water I drank. I read the public IG suicide note of Arlana Miller, a pretty young college cheerleader. She says goodbye to her mom and family and how COVID, her ACL injury, and failing grades have deepened her emptiness. She says she feels dead inside, the water is peaceful, and she has lost her connection to God. I imagine the unbearable peace and sadness of her final minute. I am alone with the clouds and thundering traffic. The car still won't wake up. Dark crashes down. I was supposed to have met up with a friend for drinks and to chase women. I stand under the hidden stars and see my life. I am desperate to find a wife to feel at home in the universe. Yet I have given back good women in search of what I will never find. The director of my family therapy agency sends an email encouraging us to take care of our mental health as we take care of the clients we empower. He says in the email how therapists and clients are taking their lives at an alarming rate. I think of my own war with depression, OCD, and anxiety. I think of how many days I have had to pull myself up to help a client who is struggling to hold on. I am more than tired. Mental illness killed Naomi Judd at 76 and Arlana at 19. There are a billion ways to die, including chemical imbalance. My drinking friend calls to give me advice but never volunteers to come by and give me a jump start. He says he will head to the strip club down ta down to down wings and watch the basketball game. I almost hate him for driving past this town without rescuing me. I wait for the roadside assistance guy like God, someone I don't exactly know, but who will release me back to my routines. I call the roadside assistant guy before my phone dies, and he sends me straight to voicemail. Twice. He has blocked me, and he reported the, to Nissan that the, co the job was complete. I find charging in the grime-filled pizza place and call my insurance. They send another guy out. He's 40 minutes away. I sit and watch people walk in, even though they are unaware of the never-cleaned bathroom and years of scum glued to the sink and floor. A black boy and his Mexican girlfriend sit behind me. The boy has new love and suburbia in his voice. He orders a ton of wings, and when it comes, he says he is rewarding himself for slaving at a job he hates. He says he will be off tomorrow, and he didn't even know it. I go outside and stand by my car. I can't find the stars. I'm alone. The new roadside assistance guy pulls up with a woman in his crumbling SUV and quickly jump-starts the car. He's black. He says I look like someone he knows. I say I don't. The woman looks out at me like she could enhance my life. I get in my car and my father calls. He gives me late advice about the battery and alternator and how to park the car once I get home so the tow truck can easily grab it. He wasn't part of my world for the first 13 years, and when I left Jamaica to live with him in America, he was not naturally nice to me. I think of the car finance guy who two weeks ago looked at my credit report and said he would give me advice like I was his own son. I didn't cry. I think how some people are set up to win. The finance guy told me how his son had an 800 credit score and just brought a home.
I drive my homes on water so big and beautiful that they outshine the quarter moon. The moon rocks like an empty rocking chair. I drive in warmth. Downtown New Haven is not full because it is Wednesday and the Yale kids strain over exams. Two black-dressed Spanish girls keep falling as they walk from a bar. I want to stop, but I think my car breaking down was God sending me a message to turn my life around. I nearly died in an accident two months ago that totaled my car. I am the same man, in more debt and depression. So many people are dying right now, and I get to climb that Victorian stairs to a place called home. There is nowhere to go but bed after washing off a sad day. I used to be afraid of falling asleep and never waking up. Now I accept there is another world. The TV purrs. All the lights can, can't go out. I let silence take me beyond this night. Unable to sleep, I listen to Naomi. Listen to love can build a bridge between poor and good times. I hear the rumble of a distant train cutting through a scenic valley of ponds and green trees. Sweet memories return to me. First kiss, first goal in high school soccer match, first poetry award, first ace in a golf tournament. First time a woman said she loved me more than herself, I get up and savor the dark richness of gingered sorrel. The way it carries me back to Christmas nights, family, lights, and songs. I hear delicate notes falling from a flute. I know life is likely in love with me, too. That's a, a long poem by Ray and Lennon. That's going to be Tuesday's poem. And as always, I just love the way Ray and, you know, moves through, um, you know, just such an immediate presence here, like inside is his, his body and his mind as uh, you're reading his poems. And such a distinctive style as well. That's going to be Tuesday's poem on Rattle. And now let me double check, make sure nobody else asks for anything. And um, let's see. Okay, so we're going to wrap up with the Saiku for today. And today's Saiku is as follows. So it's based on this story, which you might have heard. It was a very, very popular in the media um, story here. Scientists first grow plants in soil from the moon is the story. Um, a first. And so these scientists um, at the University of, was it Florida? Yeah, the University of Florida. Um, they actually, they're, they're scientists studying life on other planets. And they acquired some small, like a few teaspoonfuls of size sample of lunar soil. Um, lunar regolith is what they call it. And um, it actually got a few plants to grow in it. And what struck me about this, not only is it interesting, you know, to see this works but what struck me is how much it's like a um a um science fair type project i mean it's just it's something that i might do with my daughter except we don't have access to lunar dust <laughs> but uh but getting plants to grow and seeing how they grow is kind of a a staple of that so that's what i was thinking about although it is very cool to see um the plants grow the plants could grow but they showed signs of stress so the soil there was something that they didn't like about the soil but um and of course, I was wondering because there's you know soil is full of microbes, and how do they do that? How do they, how does it get past that? And um, apparently, the absence was a problem. But they also did add plant food and water, so it wasn't like just growing out of dust. But but close, close. So here's the psyche for this week, and there's two. I couldn't decide which one I liked better. So um, so so here two. Um, I, I was, there are two directions I was pulled by this this little science story. Um, stirring the teaspoonful of moon dust. Stirring. The teaspoonful of moon dust. That's the first psyche. And then the next one, science fair, a baby studies the yellow ribbon. Science fair, a baby studies the yellow ribbon. 
Those are your two Saiku for this week, and that is the show for the week. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Um, it was wonderful talking to Mike White for the first time. It was one of those poets that you know, I never met, and I always wish I did, because I love his work. It was very cool to see uh, where all that comes from. Um, thanks for wonderful poems on the open lines. Um, that was wonderful, too. The prompt for next week is another um, another one that, that might, you might like here. This is, uh, once again, from Megan. Your earliest childhood memory. That is a prompt. So, um, and um, and I tweaked that one. Megan just said a early childhood memory, but I want your earliest. I think it'd be a little more fun to be precise. Like, what is the earliest one you can remember? Um, and of course, you could just cheat, make it make it one early memory. But uh, I don't know. I have a couple little images. We'll see what comes up. But I'm looking forward to writing that. That is your prompt for this week. And next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be um, Alexis V. Jackson. Um, Alexis has a poem in the uh, in the summer issue, which is just sent to the printer. And I was usually it's out around May twenty second. You know, it's usually sort of toward the end of May that would come out, but we have a delay in the printing because of uh, industry problems that are going on. So it's going to be a little more um, toward June ish, a little past June probably when the issue comes out. But uh, she has a poem in there. Her new book is My Sister's Country, which just looks wonderful. I haven't read it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, that's Rattlecast number one forty five with Alexis V Jackson. The regular time, Sunday, May 22nd at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope to see your earliest childhood memory. And uh, have a great rest of your Sunday. Talk to you later. Goodbye.